Good morning. How are y'all? Everything's going well? That's why you're in church, right? <laughs> it may not be going as well, it seems. Well, I have my hopes, and my hope is that I can be a blessing to you this morning by the grace of God. It is good to be back in Frisco Bible Church. You weren't as far away this time as you were the first time. Distance is psychological, and uh, my psychology just about blew all its fuses getting here the first time because I had Frisco, you know, somewhere down around Stonebriar Shopping Center or something like that, and we're not even halfway from my house, I think, to here. So uh, I think I shocked the rest of the team by being here on time this morning, early, in fact. So, my privilege to serve you. Few things in my life have held me back as much as fear. Fear gets a grip on my soul. It puts shackles on my hands. It impacts my ability to love. It's very very harmful for me and others. There, there are many different kinds of fear, of course. I often will ask groups when I have an opportunity to interact with them about fear, about the nature of fear in their lives, and sometimes I say, let's just use a whiteboard and list all the different kinds of fear that impact you, and almost always the first one that comes up is the fear of failure. And then there are some who might even have the fear of success, and others who have the fear of rejection. And there are many different kinds of fears. One that I've experienced, and I'm sure you may have as well, is fear for a friend. Maybe it's someone I'm really interested in and I and, and, uh, haven't seen for a while, and I try to get in touch. And I check around, and I have the right information, but I'm not getting a response. And so I'm wondering, what's happened to my friend? Is my friend okay? Has my friend become sick? Is my friend in a bad place? How can I find out? And I have fear for my friend. Sometimes I'm working with a group, and I sense a tension between me and the group, and it, it becomes fairly overt. And in fact, I have to address it. And then I don't get a response back. And I become afraid. Afraid for them. Afraid that they're confused. Afraid that they don't understand. Afraid that they're going to keep on going in harmful and destructive ways. And I'm very concerned for them. But then, (laughs) I begin to realize, what if my effort to bring healing is really producing anger? What if I've hurt them? What if I've wounded them? What if I messed up? I'm good at that anyway. What in my effort to solve a problem, what if I actually have created a problem? And I'm afraid. Now, if you identify with any of those fears, the fear concerning a friend, 
the fear concerning the response of others, or the fear concerning your own actions, you're very apostolic. Did you realize that? You have now reached the level of Saint Paul. Did you realize that that's saintly, that kind of fear? That that's apostolic, that sort of fear? You have reached the highest level in a low spot. <laughs> or maybe it's the lowest level in a low spot. You see, that's exactly what Paul was feeling in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul tells us about a deep and intense sense of fear that held him, and he couldn't get free from it. He describes it in verse 12 when he says, When I came to Troas to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Let me take just a moment to help you understand. Paul started in his trip to Troas in Ephesus. Now, if you can imagine the west coast of Turkey carving kind of like this, and Ephesus almost in the center, almost dividing north and south, and go way up north, almost to the edge, you would come to Troas. And if you look to the west, you discover that Across from Troas is Philippi, and there's a narrow body of water that you can go across till today. You can take ferry boats from Troas to near Philippi in Greece. And Paul had sent a friend, his name, Titus. Titus was his troubleshooter. Titus was his man to solve problems. Titus was his man to go in and bring peace where there was disharmony. And so he sent his man, Titus, to go to Corinth. Because, you see, he had written a letter to Corinth. He'd actually written at least two. Second Corinthians is the third. The first one he calls the painful letter, and uh, the Holy Spirit ripped that one up and threw it away, so it probably was pretty painful. And the second one was 1 Corinthians. And as he wrote 1 Corinthians... He sent Titus to follow up the letter. It was a hard letter. It was a letter about rejection. They rejected him. It was a letter about immorality. It was a letter about lawsuits in the church. It was a letter about general disharmony. It was a letter about confusion in worship. It was a letter about gender issues. It was a, a letter about money in particular. It was a letter about doctrinal confusion. It was especially a letter at the end about the fact that the Corinthians had promised to send some money to Paul that he would take to Jerusalem for poor people who were suffering because of Christ, and the Corinthians hadn't come through yet. And he had some hard things to say about doing what you said you would do. And he sent Titus to find out what was happening. Because he sensed that there would be tension over that letter. And he began to think, what if there's a break in my relationship with them? What if I meant it for good, but it turned out to be bad? What then? And 
And so he tells us in 2 Corinthians 2, 13, that though he had this wide open door, his spirit had no rest. His spirit was stirred up. His spirit was struggling, sort of the way you feel if you're afraid you've created a problem, if you can't find a friend, if there's tension between you and and a group, and you had to say something, and you haven't heard back. So he says, I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is in northern Greece, right across the ocean from Troas. And in the midst of this dark struggle, in the midst of this painful struggle, Paul begins to teach us the solution to fear to these kinds of fears when he teaches us the five C life. The five C life. What is that like? Well, here's the first of the five C's. We live a life of constant thanksgiving. Five constants in the Christian life. Five constants that are always true for every one of us as Christians. And look how Paul changes the total attitude and atmosphere of the passage when he says in verse 14, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now, wait a minute, Paul. How do you go from this description of this struggle that you're having to this outburst of thanksgiving? How does the atmosphere change from the lowest of the low from depression to the highest of the high, to rejoicing. What happened that made that possible? Thanks be to God. Well, the answer is in chapter 7, in verses 5 through actually 11. I'll just summarize it for you. Paul found Titus in Macedonia. Titus was on his way to meet him. Titus was okay. There were no problems. He was safe. There were no struggles. He didn't have to worry about Titus. Titus had resolved the issue. In fact, the Corinthians, who when they first got his letter, were very upset with him, gradually calmed down and began to realize that what Paul was saying was true. And they did what he told them to do in that letter. And so Paul begins to rejoice. Why? Because though he created pain for a short time, he brought about healing through that pain. Like a surgeon creates pain to bring healing. And so Paul says, I am thankful. Why? For what God is doing that we cannot see. Do you see the first of the two reasons to be thankful? We live a life of constant thanksgiving Because God is working in ways we cannot see. Have you ever observed how God doesn't tell you what he's doing in your life? You've observed that? You've observed how God doesn't ask you if he can do it. He just does it. And when you say to him, God, what are you doing? You don't get an answer back. 
until after he's done it. You understand? That we never know what God is doing until he's done it. And then we add that to the list of things that he's done and he's done and he's done and he's done because we know we can be thankful based on what God has done. Now that raises a very interesting question that we're facing right now. What is God doing in this election? And how can we be thankful for it. <laughs> Consider the options. No. Really? Ordinarily, really would be no. What's God doing? Do we know? Can we tell? How did we end up here? And how, how did we get here without seeing it coming? And how did we get here so stinking fast? Sixteen months ago, we'd have never thought of this. Today, we have no idea what God is doing. But there's one response to make. You know what it is? Be thankful. You know why? Because God, God has always only done good even through the hardest moments of life. Be thankful. But Paul takes us a step further when he says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumph. Here's our next C. We live a life of constant triumph. Constant thanksgiving. Why? Because we are living alive, we're living lives of constant triumph. We can be thankful because God's kind of triumph. And I need to say that it's God's triumph, not ours. It's God's kind of triumph, not our kind of triumph. We wouldn't choose to triumph the way he is. To understand what Paul is saying, you have to understand the image that's, that's in this passage. Oh, before I get to the image, I should remind you that this triumph is in Christ, not us. That's why it's not our kind. That's why it's his kind. Oh, also, there is that word always. It's right there. It's right there in the text. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumph. Now, always. 
That's a puzzling word. Always. You know what? I know, I know, I know. The Greek will rescue us. Right? I mean, who always feels triumphant? (laughs) Right. I'll tell you. The question is this. What does always mean in the Greek? Somebody here knows Greek, huh? (laughs) Always in Greek means always. There's never a moment when God is not leading us in his kind of triumph. Never a moment. There's never a moment when God is not triumphant in Christ. Never a moment. There's a picture behind this image. It's the picture of a Roman general who has gone out and conquered new territory, who has taken at least 5,000 of the enemy, who has brought most of his troops back. He's taken good care of his troops. And who is worthy of honor and recognition. The Roman Senate would, would vote the funds for this parade. And the first thing they would do is build an arch, a beautiful work of sculpture. And on this arch, they would have all kinds of pictures of what the battle was like. And you could see, actually, that people could go and look at the arch and and see the battle as it's depicted in that stone. And then there would be a parade. And in that parade, you would have the general in the middle of the parade in a special chariot, and you would have his troops marching with him. And you would have the priests lining the street, swinging censers back and forth, censers, the odor of the incense filling the air. And you'd have millions of Romans standing on the sides of the streets, honoring this general. And at the beginning of the parade, you would have Slaves who are headed to death. And in the back, you would have slaves who are headed to life. God's triumph is moving through time. And every generation ends up in God's triumph. Those who say yes to Jesus are headed for life. Those who say no to Jesus are headed for death. And we are the yes, no line. The life, death line of the 21st century. Because our lives force people to say either yes or no. Paul develops this image when he says in verse 16, for, well, when it says in verse 15, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. You know, when you go to work, 
you smell like Christ. And some of the people who work with you say, you smell like Christ. You had that experience? Been a warning. And others say, you smell like Christ. And they want him. And your life is the yes, no line. The life, death line of the 21st century. Where Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16, a one of fragrance from death to death, the other of fragrance from life to life. And in the midst of this, he uses another image. He uses the image of the sacrifice offered on the altar and Jesus hanging on the cross. And he says, Jesus smell or God smells the sacrifice and it is pleasing to him. And we smell like Christ to God and we are pleasing to him. But to those around us, we are not. And we are life or we are death. Let me tell you something, my friends. In this election, I don't know all that God is doing, but I know this much. He is highlighting the yes-no line. We have to say yes or no to him. And so much those around us. One of the things that this election is doing that I think may be the beginning of a new era for us is that it's calling us to our prime target. Our prime target is not our lifestyle. We've been fighting for that for a long time. Our prime target is not saving America. We've been trying to do that as, a, as a, an American church. Our prime target is saving Americans. And there's a difference. We don't save our culture. We influence our culture. We impact our culture. We call our culture to transformation. We do not save our culture. God is calling us to focus. He's calling us to get on target. Because I fear that many of us have been off target, have drifted, have turned to the good and away from the best, have turned to cultural issues instead of the cross. God's triumph is clearly in the cross. And he may have brought us to this terrible choice. 
to give us an opportunity. This is an opportunity like we have not had. This is an opportunity to smell like Christ in a most distinctive and special way. This is an opportunity to penetrate with the gospel, with the life of Christ, with His power and His presence. But right now is a real good time to be afraid. Right now is a real good time to feel fear. Because, well, because it's apostolic. Because if you want to be like the Apostle Paul, then you will notice his next question. At the end of verse 16, who is adequate for these things. Who is adequate to be the yes-no line of the 21st century? Who is adequate to be the life-death line? That's why we move from it. That's why we, we move away to other things and other, uh, other aspects of focus. Why? Because we're not adequate. There are things we can do, but we can't do this. So now is a great time to feel inadequate. Now is a great time to say, I can't do this. Because we can't. There are a lot of things we can do in our own power, but we can't change one life. Now, I would expect Paul, when he raises this question, who is adequate for these things, I would expect him to say, so <laughs> I think, think I'll resign and find another, another business. <laughs> this apostolic business is a little bit too much for me. But that's not what he does at all. Because, you see, he understands we are death to death, life to life. And yet he says, Yes, we live a life of constant inadequacy, but we lack these resources. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the, the abilities. We don't have the courage. We're afraid. We don't have the confidence. Yet, he says, we live a life of constant confidence. We live a life of constant confidence. That's amazing. Look what he says in verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. The idea is that of the street corner sellers of wine who would stand on the street corner and say, oh, the finest wine from the finest vineyards in all of Greece right here. Wine, wine, have, have a glass of wine. But everybody knew it was 90 proof water. They watered down the wine. And they sold it as the best. 
And Paul says, look, when it comes to the Word of God, even though I'm not adequate, even though I cannot do this, even though I'm totally unable to do it, just the same, I'm not backing out at all. I'm not turning away from the Word of God. I'm not turning away from the cross of Christ. I'm not turning away from the capacity of God. I will not step back one, one inch from the message of Christ. I will not cut the edge. I will not sell an inferior product. In fact, he says, we are men of sincerity and women of sincerity. And the idea is we are pure in our thinking, pure in our message, pure in our lives. We don't mix in anything else. And he uses a picture from the Roman marketplace. You go shopping and you want to buy a piece of pottery and, and you, you get to the place where the pottery is and you walk in and, and there's someone there waiting for you. Oh, welcome, welcome. You're my first customer of the day. I've got a wonderful piece of pottery for you. Come, come, come. And you go all the way back in the darkest part of the tent. And he shows you this beautiful piece of pottery. And if you're smart, you say, let me take it outside. Let me hold it up to the brightest light in the ancient world, the sun. Because that bright light will show, will shine through the cracks that have been filled in by beeswax. And Paul says, we're not like that. I am inadequate. I am human. I have cracks. But I will not fill in the cracks of my life with beeswax. I will fill in the cracks of my life with the presence of God. Paul says... Paul says, I will not step back from my conviction, from my commitment. And that's what I say to us today. That's what I say no matter what comes out of this election, no matter what happens in our nation. We must be men and women who will not step back from the cross. We will not be turned aside to this political issue or to this cultural war. We will focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. We will stand in him. You see, it's amazing. Even though we live a life of constant inadequacy, we live a life of constant confidence. But how? If we are so inadequate, how can we have this kind of confidence Paul says, because we live a life of constant adequacy. We are inadequate. But Paul says in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, coming out of the end of chapter 2, he says, no, wait a minute, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not saying this out of my own confidence. I'm not saying this 
because I'm commending myself. I'm not saying this because I need a letter of recommendation from you. No, everyone knows the impact of God's grace through me. You Corinthians know it. Why? Because he says, you are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And I ask you a very simple question. What's written on your heart? The names of men and women, young people, boys and girls who have come to Christ because of your life? The names of men and women, young people, boys and girls who have come to a place of knowing Jesus, who have come to a place of eternal life? Is that what's written on your heart? We ask, what can we do in our nation? How can we make a difference? Don't we realize that Jesus has already told us? Don't we realize that he never makes sense, but he's always right? Don't we realize that his direction, his command, called his commission to make disciples, is what will transform our nation? We can pass laws, but laws give no life. Only the Lord gives life. If someone comes to read your heart, will that person see the names of people whose lives you have impacted? Because that's Christ's call in your life. And no matter what comes out of this election, the commission of Jesus Christ to talk truth and influence people stands just as true today as it's ever been. Verse 4. Paul says, I have this kind of confidence. But I have it through Christ, not in myself. I have it toward God because of what he's done through Christ on the cross. I am not adequate in myself to claim anything is coming from me. But my adequacy, our adequacy, is from God who has made us adequate to be bringers of new life to the people around us. That's what we're about. And Christ in us is our adequacy. Christ in us is our adequacy. And so we overcome fear through the five constants of the Christian life. Constant thanksgiving, constant triumph, constant inadequacy, constant confidence, and constant adequacy. And what is needed in our nation is people who live the 5C life. That's the best boat you can cast every day. Father, touch us. We need 
We need strength from you. We are not adequate. We have no resources in ourselves. We cannot do anything of ourselves, and we acknowledge that to you now, and we call on you to be our enablement. Through your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, for your glory, we, we pray these things. Amen.